Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Business Books Podcast. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, Executive Opinion Editor of the Financial Times. This is the second of three programmes in which we'll talk to authors of the six books on the shortlist for this year's Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. You can read more about the shortlisted titles at ft.com bookaward or follow the award on social media using the hashtag BBYA18. In this podcast, we'll be talking about enterprise and entrepreneurs, and in the final instalment, our subjects will be work and society. I'm delighted to be joined on the line from New York by John Carreyrou, author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, and from Singapore by James Crabtree, formerly the FT's Mumbai correspondent and author of The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. John, let's start with you. Could you have a shot at describing as briefly as you can the central ideas behind Bad Blood? So Bad Blood is a book about Theranos, uh, which was one of these fabled unicorns, these companies in Silicon Valley, these startups that uh, remain private and uh, reach valuations of more than a billion dollars. Theranos in its heyday was actually worth $10 billion. And uh, the entrepreneur who founded it uh, was a young woman named Elizabeth Holmes, who dropped out of Stanford University at 19 years old in 2003 and pursued this vision for a blood testing device that could do all the blood tests from a pinprick of blood drawn from the finger. And as it turned out, she was exaggerating her achievements. And by the time I started writing about Theranos and essentially exposed her in late 2015 in the Wall Street Journal, she had gone live with her supposedly innovative finger stick blood test in Walgreens stores in two states, in, in California and Arizona. And so it became a story not just about a corporate fraud, the defrauding of investors, but also a scandal that involved the public health and patients put in harm's way. Thanks, John. And James, your turn. Tell us briefly what your book is about. So I was the Mumbai correspondent for the Financial Times for five years in India between 2011 and 2016. And that was a period of extraordinary change in India. And I became particularly fascinated with the the country's burgeoning tycoon class and the extraordinary amounts of money that they were making. India uh, re-liberalized relatively recently, only two or three decades ago. Um, and after a slow start in the middle of the 2000s, began to re-globalize with a vengeance. Um, and the number of billionaires in the country rocketed from only a small handful to now something like 120, more than any other country apart from America or China. And so the book, The Billionaire Raj, tells the story of that accumulation of wealth, mostly for its darker side, uh, which is in a sense the more entertaining and interesting bit. So I tell the story of the super rich and the inequality that they brought with them, but perhaps more of relevance for this conversation 
I profile a number of India's more colorful and buccaneering billionaire entrepreneurs, uh, tycoons, as, as you tend to call them in that context, and the models of crony capitalism that they went with. Unlike Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, they weren't, in a sense, taking money from venture capitalists, but they were taking money in large amounts from state-backed banks in India and often misspending it. And so the book looks at these themes of the new hyper-wealthy um, and the model of crony capitalism that allowed India to generate a lot of this wealth. Thanks. James, this is an award that goes to the book that provides the most compelling and enjoyable insights into modern business issues. What do you think business readers, a CEO, a banker or a venture capitalist, say, should take from the billionaire Raj? What captivated me about India is that you have an entirely different model of capitalism from the one that you find in the West. That's partly the characters who lead these businesses. So in the West, your typical um, model of a FTSE 200, 100 uh, chief executive, you have a certain image in your mind. But these figures are far less interesting than the tycoons who bestride Asia, particularly those who had big distributed conglomerates. So there was that. And then there's simply the fact that, you know, everyone in the world needs to become more familiar with these vast new Asian markets. And India is, in a sense, the most interesting because not only uh, is it going to be the world's third, potentially second or fourth largest economy later this century, but it's the one that started its journey into globalization latest. So it's the one whose story is, in a sense, yet to be written. And so for those two reasons, I mean, I think even beyond the fact that some of these characters are just fantastically entertaining, piratical, uh, risk-taking figures um, akin to those you saw in an entirely different age in the 19th century in the United States, for those reasons alone, the different model of capitalism and the sheer size of India's future market, it's worth knowing what's going on there. And John, what are the business lessons of your book? After all, it is a kind of morality tale, isn't it? I'd say the the main item of interest for people coming at this book from a business vantage point is that it shows the dark side of Silicon Valley. This is a culture in which, you know, concepts such as vaporware and fake it till you make it have been around and really part of the, the DNA of the Valley since it was created in the, in the 50s and, and 60s. And Elizabeth Holmes's own idol, Steve Jobs, was known for sometimes exaggerating and for doing demonstrations of product before they were quite ready. Larry Ellison, one of her early investors, was notorious for advertising features in his early database software at Oracle that his coders hadn't even begun to work on and for shipping software that was crawling with bugs to the point that one of its early clients, the CIA, would help Oracle debug the software. And so I think Elizabeth Holmes, you know, saw these men. And by the way, she wanted to join the pantheon of these tech billionaires who all happened to be men. She wanted to be the first woman to do it. And when she saw them all faking it until they made it, and several decades later, you look at, at Jobs and Ellison, of course, they're American icons and, and their companies are some of the most valuable in the world. She decided to apply that playbook to her company. And I think her grave mistake was that her company was ultimately a healthcare company. It was not a, a computer hardware software company, and you can only fake it till you make it so far with a uh, medical product that doctors and patients are going to use to make important health decisions. And so really, in a healthcare context, you see how that Silicon Valley culture, really, that the lack of business ethics has its limits. Just a week after Bad Blood was published, John, Elizabeth Holmes was indicted on charges of criminal fraud, and that was after she'd dismissed your original reporting on the company as fantasy. I guess that was vindication of sorts. It was. The Securities and Exchange Commission had actually already filed civil fraud charges that she had settled a couple of months prior, which had caused my publisher to decide to accelerate the publication of the book. 
So the book was originally going to be published in, in October, and we moved it forward to late May. And then just a couple of weeks after publication, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco announced criminal charges, not just against Elizabeth, but also against her ex-number two executive, a man named Sonny Balwani, who was also her boyfriend. I guess it was entertaining if you were watching it neutrally, not so entertaining for me because I was in the middle of this fight. And it was vindicating in the sense that the company fought extremely hard, both before the publication of my first investigative piece in 2015, but also in, in the ensuing months. And in the end, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal reporting was proven entirely true. James, your book is about what one might call globalization with Indian characteristics. Was the Indian version of the Gilded Age an inevitable byproduct of India's belated embrace of globalization? Or to put it another way, was the kind of crony capitalism you describe in the book inevitable? So many countries go through a stage of early industrialization, uh, you know, when they cease being effectively agrarian economies um, and become middle income, more industrial, bigger service sectors. That was true in America after the Civil War in the run up to the turn of the last century. It was true in Britain in the early part of the 19th century. It was true in Japan and South Korea. And so, in a sense, India is going through a stage of economic development that is quite familiar. And therefore, I think one could be optimistic about the fact that many of the challenges that India faces are not unique. On the other hand, India is doing this with extraordinary scale, doing it as a full democracy, and it's doing it against a backdrop of enormous corruption scandals. So that the type of corruption which John talks about in his book, the way in which Theranos managed to dupe regulators and financiers, this is the sort of thing that you see all across the Indian economy particularly in the, the kind of core industrial heartland where tycoons need things from the government like land or mining rights, that sort of thing. And so you have seen this extraordinary welter of scandals, which began in the middle of the 2000s and broke over the following decade while I was there. And in a sense, they still scar Indian politics and the relationship between business and government today. And so that, in a sense, is the, the animating story. Now, was this inevitable? I suppose it is possible that some kind of very wise public policy might have avoided it. But I think it was very difficult to imagine that happening. The speed at which India globalized and the weakness of its public institutions made it extremely difficult for anything other than this sort of outcome to occur. John, the FT's review of your book referred to a large cast of establishment figures who should have known better about Elizabeth Holmes. And these include Jim Mattis, former director, and now US Defense Secretary. So she managed to pull the wool over some pretty significant people's eyes didn't she? She did. And I think uh, you have to look at the environment. You've had this enormous bubble inflate in, in Silicon Valley in the years since the financial crisis. And there's been uh, enormous quantities of money that have been flowing in the, the Valley ecosystem. And so it's given rise to sort of a gold rush atmosphere. And everyone's been joining, uh, whether it, it be a, uh, as an investor or board member, but everyone's been trying to attach themselves to the next Facebook. And I think people like Mattis and the other ex statement who were on the Theranos board, uh, people like George Schultz, former Secretary of State under uh, Reagan, Henry Kissinger, they thought that potentially Theranos was the next Facebook. And so, you know, they joined the board and, and they were granted several million dollars worth of stock. It helped Elizabeth Holmes that, of course, none of these ex-statesmen and military commander knew anything about medicine or, or blood testing. And I think what also helped her was her intelligence, her charm, her charisma. She really wrapped these older men around her finger. And um, in, in a way, they were 
really bewitched by this young woman. James, you alluded earlier to the fact that your book is also full of larger-than-life characters. There's Mukesh Ambani, who built himself an extravagant residential tower that now dominates the Mumbai skyline. There's the fugitive drinks tycoon Vijay Malia, or the industrialist Gota Madani. Who's your favourite from that vivid cavalcade? So Mukesh Ambani is the most impressive. He's now the richest man in Asia. He has a fortune of $45 billion. But I suppose my favorite is Vijay Malia, who's the um, the tycoon who's inherited Kingfisher beer and, and founded Kingfisher Airlines. And in the book, I tell the story of going to see him in exile in London, where he now lives as a fugitive from Indian justice and spending an afternoon having him unburden himself about uh, all the things that went wrong in his business, which went bankrupt and he had to flee the country. But in a sense, the portrait of, of somebody like Malia is quite similar to Elizabeth Holmes in the sense that he was always trying to keep all of the, the plates spinning. He borrowed a huge amount of money to expand his business from drinks into airlines and had plans to establish himself as the, the Richard Branson of India atop a gigantic empire with Kingfisher branded products. And he was able to do this for a while. He was a member of parliament, so he had lots of friends in politics. He was able to call in favors. He was very charismatic. And somebody once described him is a little bit like a cross between Hugh Hefner and Richard Branson. <laughs> um, but in the end, he wasn't able to fool all of the people all of the time. And, and in the end, a combination of the fact that he wasn't terribly good at running a low-cost business like an airline and the fact that he had uh, sold his bank as a, a fine story about the amount of growth that he would get and various other things came together that meant that, as with Theranos, the whole thing came crashing down. And now he is uh, sort of hiding out in London as the Indian judicial system tries to track him down. So in a sense, this combination that you see in both of these books of characters who have extraordinary ambition, but in a sense, bend the rules in pursuit of that ambition um, is true of Silicon Valley. It was true of the, the railroad tycoons in America in the 1900s, and it's true of India in the billionaire Raj today. And I think these are some of the most um, sort of exciting moments and also the most dangerous moments in modern capitalism. If I were to pick a figure who reminded me uh, in the West of some of these Indian tycoons, then it would be somebody like Elon Musk. You have to look to Silicon Valley to see business figures who have the kind of ambition that you see amongst the tycoons of India, but then that ambition often comes with uh, with problems. John, if I can pick up on that, you show in your book how Elizabeth Holmes was mesmerised by the legend of the late Apple founder Steve Jobs. Do you think there's something peculiarly corrupting, therefore, about Silicon Valley's cult of the Promethean founder? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that's gone too far. Steve Jobs is arguably the biggest culprit. Fortunately, he's not around anymore to defend himself, but he has been lionized. You know, he is considered a god of American capitalism. And and you have these founders like Elizabeth Holmes, these young people who drop out of university, don't even wait to get their degrees, who, who really want to follow in his footsteps. And they're enabled by the myth of the founder that amazingly in Silicon Valley, that people, people really believe that there's this breed of people, young, brilliant, and they can do no wrong, and they can see around corners. And you see another example of it with Elon Musk. And with Tesla, they're a company that is still not able to turn a profit, is still not able to make cars efficiently. Although I'll make one key distinction, which is that the cars that it does make do seem to drive uh, 
uh, unlike Theranos, which never had a product that worked. But to go back to Tesla, it's, it's a company with $10 billion in debt, and yet it's a company that's valued at some $50 billion, and it's worth more than any other company in North America because it has this legion of fanatical followers who believe that Elon Musk is brilliant and can do no wrong. For me, it's always amazing. I am based in New York, and I go out to Silicon Valley several times a year. And every time I land there, it's amazing to me to see how much people buy into you know, this concept and, and how much they're drinking the Kool-Aid. James, Narendra Modi was elected as Indian Prime Minister in 2014 on, among other things, an anti-corruption ticket. How effectively has he gone after the kinds of crony capitalism you describe in the book? So Narendra Modi is a controversial figure and he divides opinion. I think a fair assessment would say that he certainly cleaned up um, some of the most egregious example of the crony capitalism that happened under the previous government, particularly that which was happening in Delhi between senior ministers and senior industrialists, the corruption around the, the cabinet table. And until relatively recently, there hadn't been a really big scam on his watch. Nonetheless, I think his record has been much less good in, in two other respects. One is if you're a, an ordinary Indian, do you pay fewer bribes and encounter fewer sort of incidences of corruption? And I, I think the surveys suggest there's not much evidence of that. But more importantly, the real um, original sin of Indian democracy is the way that the political system is funded, which is almost all done illegally. One estimate suggested the last election in 2014 cost about $5 billion. Now, almost all of that is raised and then spent illegally. And a lot of it is spent on simple bribery. And in the end, um, Narendra Modi and his party have done very little about that, in fact, almost nothing, uh, because they're one of the main beneficiaries of this. Modi himself is not corrupt, but he sits atop a system in which other politicians in his party are raking in hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of illegal donations. And we have no idea what the quid pro quo for any of that is. And so until that in particular um, is fixed and until... Modi is able to bring in better, more transparent governance in other areas, then it's hard to see that this problem of crony capitalism isn't going to recur in the future. Of course, the US example shows that legal campaign funding is not necessarily the solution to the kinds of excesses you're talking about. John, one last question for you. You say at the end of Bad Blood that Elizabeth Holmes, and I'm quoting you, Holmes's moral compass was badly askew. But this isn't just a story of one person's consuming avarice, is it? Well, it was It was in a way. I mean, she probably was an outlier in the way that she was willing to cross that bright red line, which was that in late 2013, you know, she had a product that didn't work and decided to commercialize it nonetheless and to make it available to consumers. And she had, you know, part of the blood test, a small fraction of the blood test that Theranos did were run on this Edison machine, which was a proprietary machine that didn't work, wasn't reliable. And then the vast majority were uh, run on Siemens uh, analyzers and and they would dilute the blood samples because the Siemens analyzers were developed to accommodate normal sized blood samples. And so they would take these tiny finger stick samples and they would dilute them to adapt them to the Siemens analyzers, which created, you know, all sorts of errors. But in a way, even as a part of her, someone that you, you hope, you know, we will not see again in Silicon Valley, I again think that to some extent she is a product of a culture. And it's this culture that says that ignoring laws and regulations as you innovate is okay. And that essentially, if you're an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley with a cool idea that you can break laws and you can commit white collar crime. And I think that's very dangerous. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Let me thank John Carreyrou and James Crabtree for joining us today. And 
and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. Listen out on the Working Careers channel on ft.com for our next business book podcast and keep an eye on ft.com slash book award for news about the award, which will be presented to one of the six shortlisted titles on November the 12th. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.